Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. This time on the podcast, we have Mr. Daniel Connell. Randy Wade, who we had on the show recently, said we absolutely had to talk to you, Daniel. And I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Randy is an awesome guy. You know, it's uh, at least I could still consider myself a younger guy in the business, uh, late late thirties now. But uh, some of the guys like Randy that have just been around forever seem like they're real icons in the business. I, I finally got to sit down and have a, a talk with him at LDI this year. You know, him being like from the days of Morpheus, it's great to sit down and talk with him about uh, you know the good old days of the the eighties and seventies and eighties in this business. But good, good, good guy. Yeah, it was a great show. Uh, so in addition to lighting, you also do media design, scenic design, and sort of full production design, right? I do. I do. I uh, definitely specialize in lighting more. You know, I don't consider myself an, an audio guy at all. Uh, but as a lot of things, you know, uh, this business is one where it's not necessarily all about what you know, but who all you know. So uh, yeah, I do, I do do full production design. But when it comes to things like especially media creation, content creation, audio design, I tend to rely on people that, that know a bit more about it than I do. So. Okay, so you kind of retain the big picture and you part out those bits to other players. Sure, yeah. So describe at the end of the business that you work in mostly. I, I have begun to specialize in, in the church market, uh, you know, specifically the Christian church market. I will still do uh, you know other things um, from time to time as we all do in this business. Uh, you know, I got my start in theater, so that will always be a passion of mine. But um, I have ended up specifically in the church market, which is, is kind of odd because I'm pretty sure there was at least several times in, uh, in my life I, I said audibly I would never do that. You know, I started out doing concert tours, you know, like I had a love for theater, but started out doing concert tours because that's where you could actually make money. And uh, at the time, which would have been, you know, late 90s, um, churches were starting to use production more and more, but they were doing it pretty poorly, uh, to be honest. And, you know, I grew up Christian, grew up around churches, but from a a work standpoint, one didn't want anything to do with it because you might have one or two churches out there that were doing some really cool, innovative stuff. But the rest, um, it almost seemed like they're using production as uh, as window dressing. As a okay, if we have neat moving lights in here now, then then we can attract the kids into our, our youth services. Not dissimilar from a club putting up eight Mac contours and saying, "Well, now we have a thing." Exactly, exactly. You have wiggly lights everywhere. Long story, which we may get into here in a minute. But uh, over the past uh, ten years, I've, I've found myself kind of led into the church market, and I've been amazed at what I found within there. You've got uh, yeah, you still have some people that are using it as as flash, but you. You also have a, a lot of people who are using production as an amazing tool week to week to help communicate their message. How did you get into the business? When did you get into the business? The business side of it, I would say my first job ever was doing lights for a DJ when I was 14 years old. So if you want to count that, that was uh, that's probably my first into the business. Did you get paid? I did get paid. I got paid $40 a night. Then which, not only did you get your start at 14, you were professional at 14. I was professional at 14, yeah. $40 a night when you're 14 years old, which would have been uh, 1994. That was That was big money, so I was happy back then. I was also lucky enough to have a, uh, a lighting company here in the town I, I grew up in, Huntsville, Alabama, uh, called Theatrical Lighting Systems, um, run by just awesome, awesome guy named David Milley. Went to him at 15 and asked for a job, and he gave me a job sweeping floors and emptying trash cans. And that, that uh, moved up to filing gel uh, from all the 180K rigs that would come back from doing festivals to eventually rolling cable and uh, working in the rentals department. Um, David put me out on my first tours. You know, ended up meeting other contacts through there. Do you, do you remember what those tours were? 
I do. Um, you know, I did a very brief time uh, as a tech with Leonard Skinner and Hank Williams Jr. Being out of the, the just south of Nashville, most of what comes through is either country or Christian stuff. So did uh, did a lot of uh, Christian music tours. Michael W. Smith, Stephen Curtis Chapman, Point of Grace, Jackie Velasquez, uh, Third Day. Which ultimately that sort of connection is what ended up leading me into the church market I'm in now. So Alabama, that's specifically Huntsville, Alabama. I would imagine you're surrounded by a bunch of really smart dudes there. <laughs> you know, and I'm not surprised that there was a sort of high-tech production going on there. You know, I know it's Rocket City, right? It is Rocket City. Uh, I don't uh, I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit trail here, but this is too good a story not to tell. This is when I was working at, uh, at TLS, and uh, this is in the heyday of Scan Commanders, if you remember Scan Commander consoles. So we had a few Scan Commanders in, in rental inventory there, and one of our clients, local clients, that uh, oddly enough did church work, now that I think about it, um, as a side business, had bought one for himself, and uh, he was having trouble with it. So um, our rental manager was on the phone with whoever the contact it was, talking through this customer's issue they're having with the scan commander. And at some point in the conversation, the the technician on the phone is is audibly getting frustrated that it's not clicking, and uh, he makes the comment, "Look, this isn't rocket science. This should work the way we're talking about." And the, our rental manager goes. Well, it's funny, this client actually is a rocket scientist, and he can't figure it out. So there's something wrong with your console. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, that was what it was like uh, growing up doing lights in, in the Rocket City. So uh, what was your education, and, and did that feed into working in the business at all? Yes and no. So grew up in a very middle-class uh, neighborhood and family. Uh, generally good schools until you started getting to middle school. So my parents were very anxious to, to get my sister and I into other schools, but uh, we were not the type of family that could afford private school. Uh, luckily, my sister was and uh, still is an amazing artist, and there's a local magnet school for the arts um, that she got accepted into. I was not an artist at all, did not have an artistic bone in my body, but uh, as a sibling, you were allowed in if, if you had another sibling who, who was accepted. So I was accepted into this art school because of my sister. The first year there, they tried me at everything, acting, dancing, singing, drawing, playing an instrument. I, I couldn't do any of it. And uh, the second year, you're, you're required to participate in the school play. Um, so I remember the day the director walks up to me and goes, look, Daniel, I don't have anything else for you to do. You're going to have to run lights for the show. And I actually said it to me in, a, in an apologetic standpoint. So she, she took me up to the booth and showed me how to run this 18-channel, two-scene Klegel, which I actually have sitting in my office now. Uh, they, were, they gifted it to me when the school was torn down. But fell in love with it immediately. Uh, so yeah, that that definitely massively influenced uh, my career path. I would say uh, that year I felt pretty confident uh, confident about what I would be doing the rest of my life. Continued doing that sort of thing, local productions all up through high school. Tried a, a brief stint in college. I went to the University of Texas for a semester, and then when I discovered that they don't allow you to uh, design until you're a graduate student, I what? quickly yeah I quickly exited out of there. Had no desire to pay them to be a theater technician for four years. And uh, hit the road touring. So for any young guys that are listening, I'm not advising you to not go to college, uh, but that uh, that path worked out pretty well for me. So I think college is a great thing. But if you're going to go, go and get your business degree or something, because that's what I'd love to have now. Everything that I learned over those four years of touring was it valuable? Yes, absolutely. But at this point in my life, I'd love to be setting on a, a bachelor's degree in business as I work on building my, my business myself. Um, but yeah, you know, or if you have the great touring opportunity, this is still one of those businesses uh, where you don't have to have the, the piece of paper to, to do well in it. Speaking of doing well, and so you left the U of T, 
how has your career grown and progressed since then? And you know, how did you make the connections you needed? And how did you promote yourself? Well, I'm going to answer your second question first. How did I promote myself? I'll be honest, uh, upfront, very poorly. You know, that was the time way before Instagram and Twitter. And, and now anybody has the ability to visually promote their work they're doing. Um, then people had to see your work. And honestly, it was a lot more about relationships. And I, I'll say I didn't understand that well enough at the beginning of this business. I would work my tail off and do an amazing job. But then I would see other guys who were better just promoting themselves, get jobs that I wanted. That taught me a lot early on about, you know, you really have to focus on the relationship side of it, um, both with clients and even just with other people you're working with. Because the guy who is a front of house sound guy on this tour may be a production manager on the next tour that can say whether or not you get hired. So first few years, didn't do an incredibly good job on, uh, on that side of it. Worked hard, but but didn't, didn't build the relationships as I should have. Luckily, still just ended up uh, with a lot of great opportunities to work with a lot of great people. You know, there's a guy named Scott Moore out of Nashville. He's, he's interesting because in some ways, I think for a lot of people in business, he's almost unknown because uh, he specializes in, in a lot of the Christian music side of this world. But um, one of the best lighting designers that I've ever worked with in my life. Um, got a chance to do some stuff with him again this year and, uh, you know, 10 years after the last time I worked with him and just amazing, amazing opportunity. But um, you go from tour to tour, job to job, hopefully make a, a couple extra contacts uh, on, on each one. And, uh, yeah, kind of just springboarded from job to job. Ended up with the longest band I ever worked with was a, a group called Third Day and uh, was with them for about four years and uh, established a great relationship with the production manager and front of house engineer for them, which is what ended up leading me to a church job, uh, which is kind of what led me to where I am now. Oh, and where did all that happen, like geographically? Mainly out of Nashville, growing up in Alabama. A lot of my, my work and, and contacts uh, originated from Nashville. Uh, you know, even spent a few years living there until I wised up and, and got out. You end up meeting people from everywhere in this business. Did work with, with companies out of LA, did work with companies out of Miami. Uh, but most of that, I would say 80 to 90% of what I've done has been through the Nashville music market, which is why a lot of it's been country and, and Christian focused. Was it a conscious choice you made to sort of specialize in music and then even more specifically specialize in, in, in church production and Christian music? Not necessarily. Um, growing up working at theatrical lighting systems, their client base was country and Christian, um, which so that it kind of ended up becoming my client base. Um, I did, like I said, I did grow up going to church as a Christian, but didn't necessarily want to work just in that market. I think, you know, when we're younger, we all dream of uh, if you're theater-based, going and doing stuff in Broadway, or if you like uh, you like concerts, you want to work for whoever your your favorite bands are. Um, which at the time, mine were probably you know Dave Matthews and and similar. But uh, as my career's progressed, that has definitely changed. Where I spent nine years at a at a, a house gig working in a church full time in, in Tulsa, and uh, just recently went freelance again about a year and a half ago. And uh, my wife and I talked about you know what this would mean, what we'd focus on, what direction we wanted to take. One of the prevail- prevailing factors that we said this that has to be there is I just wanted to work with people I enjoyed working with, regardless of what the content was. And I think that's one of the things that changes as you get older in this business. You quit caring necessarily so much about getting with the, the, the coolest band out there and more focused on am I am I enjoying doing what I'm doing with the people I'm doing it with? You know, do, do I you know believe in the product we're, we're putting out? So you've spoken to people that do theater and TV and live music at events, and you've done sort of all of the above at mm-hmm. some point in your career. Um, what are the things that make designing for church different? I think a mistake a lot of people make when they're looking at lighting for churches, lighting for worship, 
everything immediately goes in a concert style direction. Um, you know, they, you see, you know, you, you have a full band on stage, uh, a, a large portion of whatever event we're doing, uh, is, is, is around the, the music that that band's playing. Um, so you immediately think concert. Um, I tend to approach it a little differently. You know, you, you go to a normal concert, it's, it's about the band on stage. It's about the songs they're singing. And you're trying to make that, that band look bigger than, bigger than life. Um, you know, which you can take parts of that and, and bring it into, into the, the church market, but there's also a whole other aspect. When you listen to uh, the songs they're singing, when you listen to, um, or when you look at kind of the way songs are picked and, and crafted into a service to work with other elements, you look at it and you realize what's actually happening is a story is being told. We actually do a lot of, of stuff in the church world that's not just a weekend service, but I'm going to focus on the weekend service just for a minute because that makes the most sense of what I'm talking about. Oftentimes when uh, you know, a pastor crafts his message for what a weekend service is going to be, specific songs, worship songs are chosen based on what that message is because the whole hour, hour and a half, whatever you're spending there, will have a prevailing message that you, they're, they're trying to focus on for, for that week. And that whole hour ends up being not just individual songs and then a message, but one consecutive story that's being told. In that way, it becomes a lot more like theater to me. Um, instead of just trying to add a lot of flash and color and energy to the stage, you're trying to tell the story of the emotion that these songs are telling. You know, one of the things I love so much about lighting for this market is it's, it's, you have the opportunity to make it more than just eye candy. When you listen to these songs, especially, I mean, obviously the caveat here is here that you have to b- believe in what's being said. When you listen to it, it, from the words to the music, the way it's being sung, it's so passionate. This is obviously something that these people very much believe in and, and are passionate about. And that allows you to light it in that way. Uh, the only comparison I have to that is is doing theater where, you know, my, my favorite shows to always do were not, you know, like Hello Dolly or The Music Man or, you know, m- musicals like that. But it was the, the musicals or, or even the straight plays that had a, a, a real passionate tinge to them. You know, um, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, when, when he's, you know, battling back and forth with himself, you're, you're able to get to really explore these dynamic looks that, that help amplify that. Uh, I listened to that album way too much in college. <laughs> you know, okay, Rent, uh, Pippin, uh, all of those just that, that have, maybe it's not the whole show isn't that way, but you eventually get to some point where it's, it's just all about the passion of the, the moment. To me, almost every church service is that way. Um, you know, Cirque du Soleil is another great example there of just, sometimes you can't even understand what they're saying. There's this amazing visual passion going on that lighting supports. And that's, uh, you know, that's something I think we're able to do in, with worship lighting that you can't do in other parts of the business. Well, I get what you're saying. You know, if you're talking about concerts, even a band that has a really theatrical aesthetic and is really, really saying something with its songs, the message is still contained within the one song. Mm-hmm. There's no thing that runs through the entire concert. Sure. You know, even if there's a huge message happening in that for that five minutes, it's really just for that five minutes. Right. And, you know, uh, Nine Inch Nails is another great version. Roy Bennett, just absolute uh, idol of mine. Uh, love his work. He always does. But I, I have, have taken so much inspiration from, you know, the sets they've done for Nine Inch Nails, from the looks of certain songs. 
but yeah, uh, you know, it, it, and there's even times when my favorite times are when they are able to run the look of, of two or three songs together and then tie it all in. But still at some point, like you said, it's, it's, it's a five to 10 minute yeah. deal. And you're going to, we're going to go to blue and it's all going right. to, that, that moment's going to stop. Right. Right. Uh, so yeah, lo- I love the way, you know, lighting for worship lets you tell a story for a, you know, in a more theatrical way for sure. I know that at least in some cases, the IMAG is part of the deal or a taping for playback later is part of the deal. So you also have to have some comprehension of on-camera lighting. You do. You know, uh, with the, the advent of uh, streaming uh, becoming so popular and so cheap, almost uh, just about every church out now will either record and post their services to Vimeo or YouTube after a weekend or, um, or stream it live. So yeah, you, you absolutely have to, to have an understanding of video. And I, I will say... I learned more about lighting for video in my first few years of working at a church than I did my previous 10 years of concert touring, you know, concert touring, you know how to put together a a color correction package for your spotlights. And uh, that's about where your lighting for TV experience stops when suddenly every single weekend, like you said, you're either looking at it on iMag or streaming or at least recording and posting. Yeah. You have to get good quick at, uh, at, at lighting for video. Nothing like doing it to learn how to do on-camera lighting. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <for laughs> because sure. it is a little bit of voodoo. It, it is. Luckily, with technology, is making it easier on all of us. Um, you know, some some of us, I think, uh, I'll still run into old engineers who think the the answer to everything is more light. Um, and uh, you know, technology has has luckily made it where that's not the case anymore. You actually can light something with twenty five foot candles and make it look amazing. But uh, there are still people out there that don't believe me when I tell them that. So. Um, you mentioned that sort of in the '90s, that's where things sort of kind of got rolling with church production. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up Catholic, my concept of church production was two floodlights and, and a four by mic mixer. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the history of this of this change. Well, uh, I will tell you what I know, and in some ways, I almost feel like I'm telling it as an outsider because I grew up in a very similar environment. Now, granted, it was a Methodist church, but uh, yeah, two floodlights and a, a uh, realistic brand uh, four channel mixer from Radio Shack. Um, so I didn't grow up around church production. Didn't even uh, Christian music. I didn't know existed until I started doing uh, Christian music shows. Um, so that that didn't grow up in that world at all. But have since gotten to learn a lot of the history of it. You know, in the in the '90s and early 2000s, um, as I mentioned, a lot of people were starting to use production, but not a lot. Well, there are some amazing churches out there that that were pioneers in this, like uh, Willow Creek out of Chicago was a, a really uh, early adopter of. Um, of production and, and doing it very well and also doing it in a very theatrical way. Cause a lot of their people at their church come from the Chicago theatrical market and, and brought a lot of, uh, of that background to it. Um, still to this day, they do some absolutely amazing, uh, stuff at, at Willow Creek fellowship church in Dallas, you know, in the early two thousands started to, to use it in very creative ways beyond just uh, flash. And, and there were many others around the country who I either don't remember or, or don't know, but, uh, you know, I can't speak for him, but I would say at the time, um, one of the things churches constantly face is um, how we bring in the next generation of people. So uh, a constant conversation in the church world is how do we stay fresh? How do we stay you know, relevant is a real popular term um, to use. And uh, when churches are, are looking for that sort of thing, uh, definitely mistakes will get made, such as, you know, I mentioned some that just used it as began to use production as eye candy and, and did it very poorly. Um, and there's even a lot of that still out there today, but there was also the Willow Creeks and the fellowships that, that learned to 
tie it into other creative elements in the service and use it in a more theatrical uh, theatrical way. I would say, you know, when I when I, I worked at a, a church in Tulsa called Church on the Move for um, for nine years, starting in '06, uh, I believe is when it was. I didn't even know much about the rest of the church market at the time. Um, long, long story, but my, my migration to, the, to that church was just a desire to get off the road and an opportunity to work with a, an, an amazing uh, old friend who I toured with for a long time. Um, <clears throat> while working there, got to know a lot more churches. Uh, things like uh, Twitter and Instagram have, have made the church market incredibly small now. Uh, it's, it's a place where we all are able to kind of uh, network and, and get to know each other. But everything from... The exchange of information to the price of technology coming down uh, has made uh, these tools more available to more churches out there. And um, like I said, when I first, work, growing up working at theatrical lighting systems, I knew of some churches starting to use production uh, because TLS had a lot of clients who would, would come in and, and buy. But it was all about doing a, a big uh, white light wash for video. Uh, or maybe they got four movers um, but you stick four moving lights into a room with 3,000 seats and they just get lost and you know it's just a almost more of a distraction than anything else but I would say 15 to 20 years after the church first began to adopt it uh, you're starting to see it get used in amazing ways you're starting to see people pay more attention to uh, the creative use of it, not just the technology. Um, one of my issues with the church market has been that a lot of people look internally too much when it comes to figuring out how to how to use it. They look too much at their churches. Uh, people are starting to look outwardly more. They're starting to look at at theater and a concert and go, "Hey, these guys have been using this technology, this th- these tools for years and years and years to tell their story. Um, how can we learn what they're doing to and, and adapt it to what we're doing instead of just?" doing what church XYZ down the road is, is doing. I think that has just started to happen in the past five to eight years. But I think the results from that in the church market are going to be huge. Um, I think the next 10 years for the church market, it's it's going to go from being a minor player to definitely a, a major one. You know, I, I think even looking at it from a, a manufacturer standpoint, I think a lot of manufacturers have in the past have, have built their products for theater and for concerts and then, oh, that house of worship market, yeah, that's what helps us get a little extra each year. I think we're seeing that change right now where you're starting to see manufacturers realize this market is growing so much and, and their their needs are becoming specific and their capabilities are, are growing so much. They're starting to see products built especially for them. Um, you know, you're starting to see instead of, of guys that maybe started doing lights at their church when they were little and – you know, then graduated on to doing it at, for concerts or theater, you're starting to see people make their whole careers about designing this market. Uh, th- seeing those signs are what, what tells me it's, it's at a turning point where it's going from infancy into adulthood, if and that's a decent way to say it. That's a fair way to put it. Uh, if, you know, thanks for the history lesson. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you and your design you know, more specifically. You seem to have a kind of minimalist design aesthetic for some of, some of the projects you do. Mm-hmm. What are your core design philosophies for lighting, for media, et cetera, et cetera? Core design, less is more, uh, is the simplest way to put it. I, um, my biggest gripe about a lot of events I see, and I'm not even talking about just church events or, or, or Christian concerts, but production as a whole. It's sometimes overwhelming visually. Um, you know, you'll, you'll be watching a concert and, and a great look will flash by. And then it's on to something else. Um, it's changing so much so quickly that you, you don't 
there's probably a bunch of great looks in there, but I can't tell because it's all changing so much. I, I was lucky enough when the when I worked at church in Tulsa for for those uh, nine years, lucky enough to work with an amazing creative director there. And one of the things he he constantly told me is rather than have twenty looks in a song that are all okay, I want one or two looks that just blow me away. I'll be honest, when he first told me that, I, I kind of was hesitant um, because I, I did coming from the concert world, um, came from a very cue intensive world where every little drum hit needs a, a flash to it. Um, you know, on the going from a verse to a chorus, you you change your look. It's just the law. Somewhere, someone said that's the law. But as I started to incorporate it, I fell in love with it. Um, when when you you know, and that even brings me back to the, the theatrical side of it a little bit. When you spend all your time and energy building that that one look that's just amazing, and, and to me, you get more impact out of that one look versus ten that are are, are mediocre. Um, and just step out of of lighting design for a minute and just look at design as a whole. You know, graphic design is a great example. If I look at a an ad in a magazine that has tons of words on the page and different fonts and a few different pictures over here, I'm lost on, on, on that page. There's nothing specifically drawing my attention. Um, when you look at like some of the uh, iconic Volkswagen ads of the, the 50s where you know, it's just a, a, a Volkswagen Beetle uh, in the middle of a page with just the text uh, underneath it, stuff like that grabs you. Uh, it has an effect. When some of the, the greatest industrial designers like Dieter Rams, um, you know, a lot of the stuff we've seen come out of Herman Miller. Um, well, let's not forget that a lot of the great stuff that comes out of Herman Miller uh, was designed by Charles and Ray Eames. Right, right. Um, perfect, yeah, perfect example. Who also kind of created the corporate event market. Right. Um, no, prime examples. They, all of those examples, use that less is more approach, where you take the design of whatever it is down to the, the core of what absolutely needs to be there and, and nothing less. Um, I love bringing that into a, a visual component of, of entertainment, you know, whether it's through media or, or through, through lighting. It sounds almost counterintuitive, but uh, you know, I will often build a look that might look great, but then I start pulling fixtures and things out of that look until I have it down to the, the, the simplest look I can get and still achieve the, 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 the visual that I want, whether it's um, stripping out colors and going monochromatic, whether it's you know, going down to just one element instead of two or three different ones. You know, it, it's changed uh, it's changed the way I even approach designing a rig from the beginning. I want to be able to turn on one element and have that element look great on its own. And th- then I'll design in another element that can do the same thing. And then I'll design in another element that can do the same thing. And maybe there are parts of, in the event where you see those multiple elements together, but you start first with with perfecting them on their own and, and go from there. Um, versus, you know, when I was first getting into this business and you would just throw your complement of spots and washes uh, all over the stage and hope to make some neat focuses out of it. What is your hook to find where, to, where that starts from and, and then and then to get you to that place? Oh, man. <laughs> hook. Um, and, and I get that it's different. It, it depends. It, it, it is and it does. And... I'll be honest. If uh, this is a this is a part, just uh, kind of showing all my cards here. This is a part where I still struggle, but it, it's a struggle that I absolutely love. This is the part where um, I think I personally get to go from being technician slash technical designer slash programmer to true artist. Um, I probably spend more time trying to take in content from other sources now um, than I ever have at any other time in my career because. All of that is built around things I'm influenced by. Does that make sense? 
point. Yeah, like absolutely. Said, you know, um, looking at other artists and not just other artists that do the same thing. Like I said, Roy Bennett, uh, huge fan of all his work. Um, Mark Brickman, you know, that did Pulse and lots of other stuff. Huge fan of his work. Both those guys kind of have, have, I think, parts of their their approach to design share a similar philosophy. Uh, but even more importantly, spending time looking at, at artists of, of other genres, um, graphic design uh, over the past, I would say, five to eight years, has had a huge influence on my my light, approach to lighting design, industrial design, uh, architecture. You know, I love uh, walking through airports and just spending time looking at some of the amazing uh, architecture and, and then, you know, stealing as much of it as I can to uh, use on a new set design. So to go back to your original question, Hook, I don't know if that answers the question directly, uh, but but it's probably the best one I can give at the moment. I, I, I will say as an artist, uh, just being completely open and transparent here, I believe I have identified the direction I like to go in. I believe I have identified what I like my style to be. Um, and it, it's still a fight every single design to get it to that point uh, of, of, of achieving what I want. I don't think it ever gets easier. No. I hope not. <laughs> uh, It'll get pretty boring then. But, you know, uh, you're talking about sort of transitioning from being a technician to actually being an artist. Mm. Uh, there was an essay you wrote, and you had this one bon mot that I thought was a real mic drop. And you, what you wrote is just because you understand lighting from a technical standpoint doesn't mean you have the artistic capacity to make choices that affect the feel of your service. And and I would say that you could replace the word service with concert or play or musical or et cetera. I put specific weight on a church service for that reason, because if you go to a concert and you do a horrible job with the lighting, then the people who bought their tickets are probably going to be pretty upset and walk away and, and but not think about it. Those of us who, who are Christian and believe in the message we're putting out week to week as part of these services, you know, we believe, you know, or I believe that if any component of that service keeps a person from fully engaging in the service, keeps a person from getting the message that's being preached or or saying or, or keeps them from making that connection to God in the service because you become a distraction, then in some ways it's a life or death matter. So yes, I, I believe this applies to to anything out there, especially uh, to church services. But yes, most of us, I think, get into this business as a technician first. Uh, I know I did. And then at some point somebody says, hey, you know how to run that console, right? Yeah, okay, we need to get you behind it for this show. And maybe you do a decent job and you get asked for the next show and so on and so forth. But at some point, there are true design decisions that have to be made. And they have to be made from a viewpoint outside of just being behind a lighting console. Um, they have to be made from a viewpoint of not, is this going to make the lights look better? But what does this do to the value of the show? Um, whether it's a church service, whether it's a concert, whether, whether it's theater. And I think that jump is, is the one that's the hardest for a lot of people to make. Um, and usually I can, I can tell right up front working with, with someone, uh, whether or not they've made that jump. You know, I, I can probably tell you at the point in my career when I feel like I made that jump and specifically, you know, that, that article was directed at the church market because that's a lot of what I deal with. But, you know, the tendency in a lot of churches is for whoever's in charge of the technical side, which is normally not a technical person. Normally it's a worship pastor or another pastor to say, Oh, well, Timmy over here, who's 15 years old knows a lot about computers, and this, this lighting console looks like a computer. Let's put Timmy on the lighting console. Um, that is now the most visual component of your service, is what 15-year-old Timmy is doing behind the lighting console. And yes, that can get expanded and applied to any other type of production, 
any band, any club, any anything where lighting is a component, it is going to take over everything else going on, uh, especially if it's done poorly. Um, so yeah, just because you, you have the technical capability, just because you know what the buttons on the console do, uh, I don't necessarily think that means that you uh, should have the responsibility of making those decisions. So how did you find that? So you didn't go to design school. I didn't go to design school. Know, so what, where was this? So let me let me walk it back and, uh, and and call myself out and tell you I could not count the amount of times that I was put into that seat and did not deserve to be there. Uh, that I was put there and made wrong choices. I don't think this is a, a thing where you're either born with it or you're not. Uh, so don't take anything I'm, I'm about to say here as implying that. But I do think there are people out there who are going to learn it. And there are people out there that never are. And I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, and, and, and let me let me just stop going before I go forward at all. This is nothing I say here is meant to say one job is more important than the other. Um, as a designer, the more I, I, I move into the direction of design, the more reliant I become on the technicians in my life and the more dependent I become on them, uh, the more thankful I become for them. So it's not that not it's not that somehow graduating from technician to designer is, is a, a goal everyone has to shoot for. Uh, I'm thankful there are people out there who are just amazing technicians, and that's what they want to want to be. And I'm able to do what I do because they exist. That being said, it happened working with uh, that creative director uh, at the church I worked at for nine years. I was an accomplished lighting designer when I got to the church. I had done a lot from a lighting design standpoint. I had not shifted from technician to designer yet. And, you know, I still looked at a design of a show based on how neat I could make it. I found my value in how complicated a cue I could write, um, how many cues I could write. Uh, I felt like a, a show was designed well, sometimes off of things that the audience never saw, where the fixtures laid out on the truss in an efficient manner so that you know there was always six lights uh, in each spot where a socket was going to drop. Uh, so it all made, made sense. Was, was the console laid out in the best way it could be so that I could program it as fast as I could program it? Those things are important, but the audience never sees them. So it was through working with this creative director, which uh, luckily he, he's one of those people who um, knew nothing about lighting specifically, but had an amazing understanding of design in general and understanding of how to produce an event where you, you got the biggest bang for your buck in commu- truly communicating with people. I can't sit here and tell you the day where something finally clicked, but that was definitely the, the catalyst of getting to work with him and getting to see some decisions he made, such as a lot of people, you, you'll design an element for an event. You will put a ton of time and energy and even money into it. And then you'll get to the event and you'll rehearse it. And you know that it's not quite right. But you spend a lot of time and you spend a lot of money uh, and you spend a lot of energy on doing this thing. So you feel like it has to be done. This creative director had no qualms about spending all that time and money and energy. And then if it not being right, completely cutting it from an event, that is, is an amazing thing to see. And I think, it, I think you can't walk away from experiences like that where someone's willing to uh, give it all for the quality, true quality of the event and not walk away change from it. Uh, I know I, I definitely did. And it was, it was through working with, with that guy that I think uh, the turning point occurred for me. Yeah, learning to kill your darlings is, ooh, it's a tough lesson. Sacrifice the golden calf. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what are some of your favorite recent projects? Can you walk me through a couple of them? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I got to work, 
I got to work this this past um, New Year's uh, w- with a group called Passion City Church, who uh, each year they do something called Passion Conference, which it's a it's a gathering for uh, students. Uh, I think col- college age students. Um, normally they do three over the course of a year. They'll do two in the Atlanta area and then one in Houston. This year they decided, hey, with, with the growth of the technology where you can you can run fiber and tie different rooms together and do everything simultaneously. Let's do all three of them at the same time. So I actually did not design this, this event. This uh, event was designed by an amazing, uh, amazing colleague of mine out of Britain uh, named Ed White, wonderful designer, does a lot of church and Christian world stuff as well. And because they were going to be operating the the, uh, event in three locations simultaneously, I was asked to come in and handle one of the events. Um, Specifically why this was one of my favorite ones is for the most part, we were each running our rooms independently. Ed designed it. We we divided up all the programming where he and I and the, and the third LD uh, each programmed different sections of the event. And then we uh, merged all of our programming together because it was the same rig in three locations with the same bands just flying back and forth to each location over three days. So basically the same show ordered differently in three locations, except for one moment. And what this moment was, was uh, there were three rappers and one in each location, Phillips Arena in Atlanta, uh, Gwinnett Center in Atlanta, Toyota Center in Houston. Um, each rapper did one song on their own. And then after that song, one of the rappers in Atlanta started another song. And that was playing in all three venues. And eventually the other two rappers joined in. We were all connected via, via fiber. And eventually, as the song progressed, all three rappers were rapping the same song together. The lighting that we had all programmed together, you could watch. And you know, I was in Toyota, but on iMag and, and Toyota uh, Center in Houston, I was seeing cuts from Atlanta happening. Everyone in the room was. So that experience of, of having one event operate in three different rooms simultaneously, hundreds of miles apart, was, was pretty amazing. So that, that's definitely one of, that, one of that was my, my favorite ones. And then um, I mentioned Willow Creek earlier. I got, had, an, had an opportunity to do an event with them. Uh, they celebrated 40 years as a church in the United Center last October, I believe. That one was the uh, first event I've ever done where I was purely a production designer. I didn't program it. I didn't operate it. Um, there was a, another full uh, lighting designer involved. But the challenge in that one was we couldn't get into the room ahead of time. So it was 135 points, 200-something lighting fixtures, the biggest single hang of Nexo line array ever. And we were able to start loading in at midnight for a 5 p.m. show. Um, so that was, that was pretty amazing. And I've seen some photos on your page from Seeds. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, it looks pretty extensive and pretty sexy, but also pretty unified. Tell me about that show. Seeds is probably my, my favorite uh, all-time shows uh, I've done. We did, we did five of them. What, what Seeds was, was um, Church on the Move, which is the, the church I worked for. Um, every year they would do a conference. Um, the focus of the conference was to share with other churches how we use the various creative tools we did to communicate our message every week. That might be uh, our music side. That could be the storytelling. Um, could be the way that some of our people develop dramas to help tell a story. Um, and even production. So a lot of uh, a lot of time was spent on me and some of the other uh, production professionals there sharing with other churches how we do what we did. It was also our chance to totally just let loose and, and, and blow it out. And you know, Church on the Move, their week to week services are, are are very big, very energetic, very production involved. But Seeds let us take it to a whole other level. It was a three day conference, uh, lots of music um, mixed in with preaching and teaching sessions, and uh, 
you know, I think that was out of everything we did all year, that was the the event where we were able to really focus the most on some of those design concepts I mentioned earlier. Um, the the creative the creative director there that I've mentioned several times now, Whit George, he always had a hand in the design of those events. He and I have worked closely hand in hand on uh, on developing every part of those, and for that reason, probably some of the most fun uh, events I've done. He and I constantly talked, brainstormed, discussed some of these different concepts, such as less is more or bringing design elements from things outside of just lighting, graphic design, industrial design, all that, into our stage designs. And I think Seeds was definitely the uh, the point where that was shown most. As cool as these big events are, I know that a big part of this is also the installations you do for a specific church or a specific um, group in a specific location. And you've been involved with that too. Can you tell me a little bit about installations? Sure. That that is uh, that is changing as time goes on. When uh, we we talked through the history of, of kind of production in the church a few minutes ago, and, and I realized this is a, a, a part I kind of left out. But when this first started, a lot of churches would, when they'd remodel a room or or design a new building, they would have come, someone come in and design production for that room and design a set for that room, and it was designed and built in such a way to where it was expected to last five, eight. 10 years, maybe longer. It was, it was, this is what we have. This is what we're doing. And this is it. One of the big changes we've seen over the past 10 years. Um, and I think church on the move was able to play a big part in this is it's gone from that where you're, you're, they're designing a facility. We, you know, with a, a, a 10 year time span to where facilities are now being designed more in a, a theatrical house approach to where every six months, four months, two months, they want to be able to come in and put a whole new set in on, you know, Maybe it's focused around a certain teaching series in the sermon. Um, maybe it's based strictly for a special event, an Easter, a seeds, a, a Christmas, something of that nature. But more churches are wanting to be, they're seeing that happen in other places and wanting to do it. So we are designing them to be built more like black box theaters to where you have a shell, you know, you have a 400 amp power disconnect over on the wall. You know, you have, you know, uh, DMX network built in a few specific front lighting positions that, you know, probably never, never need to change. And then beyond that, um, it's, it's built entirely flexible. Um, because of my background in touring where, you know, you have to be able to be, build things to be flexible. Uh, and because of the way we carried that, uh, idea into church of the move and use that for how we did all of our production there, it, it set me up specifically to be able to help a lot of other churches start to navigate that and to get away from, that such a fixed installation and, and and approach more of a flexible mindset. There are a lot of install companies out there who've been doing this for a long time, but they're still doing it the way they did it 10, 15 years ago. And that's just not working for a lot of churches out there anymore. They want that flexibility. They want to be able to adapt and, and change. And let's face it, when you're coming into one of these places week after week after week, um, seeing the same thing over and over can get old. They like being able to freshen things up. They like being able to put a new set back there. They like being able to, to customize based on the, the specific needs at the time. So, Can I talk about the business as a whole for a bit? Yeah. What's right with the business right now? What's wrong with the business right now? I think we've begun chasing gimmicks. I think uh, sometimes good design is sacrificed for efficiency or economy. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on LED for a minute here. LED is great, and, and I use LED uh, a lot in different areas. But, you know, when LED first started getting adopted, I don't know, what, eight, ten years ago, it started gathering steam and it, it became, 
you know, I would have discussions with people and it was, it was obvious in the discussions that they just felt like if you weren't using led for something, you were, you were behind the times, um, that specific technology until the past, honestly, in my opinion, the past year or so, um, there were lots of places that we were using it. It shouldn't have gotten used. Frontlight is a great example. You know, I've got a church I work with and I'll, I'll leave them nameless and I'll even leave the product nameless cause I don't want to call anybody out here. But one of the things I'm having to work with them extensively on is getting their front light looking right for video. Uh, you know, they bring me in just for that reason. And uh, the reason they're having issues is because three years ago, uh, an install company sold them some LED profile fixtures that look absolutely horrible. I could not get a nice, a true white out of them. I couldn't get a, you know, a 3200 white. I couldn't get a 5200 white. Um, there was always, uh, you know, too much pink or too much green still existing in the light. You know, could I have put uh, some sort of, you know, minus green filter in there? Yeah, absolutely. But once again, these are two or three year old profile LEDs. Uh, there's not enough output out of the fixture to allow you to put a, any sort of filter in front of it, and still get the intensity you need out of it. It's not that I'm in any way against LED technology. I'm against the adoption of things too fast when there are still other options out there that serve the design better. So that's just one case of, I think, where sometimes we adopt technology before it's ready. And someone could make the argument of, well, if people don't adopt it and you know invest some money into it, then it's not going to get ready. I get that, but I'm going to keep my designer hat uh, on for a minute and say I'd, I'd rather stick with the old stuff that works rather than uh, adopt the, the new stuff just because it's new. So I, I think that's that's an, an issue that, that's made sometimes. Um, things going right in the industry, this is probably going to sound like I'm saying the exact opposite of what I just said, uh, and I may be, but it's growing so much so quickly that I do think we're getting to adopt th- new th- technology at a greater speed than we ever have. You know, the way that networking has changed the communication side of uh, of lighting over the past, even just five years, I think is huge. Um, you know, I, I occasionally spend some of my time teaching lighting to, to other people, especially in the church market. You know, there's a lot of people out there that want to know more about it and don't feel they have a great av- avenue because maybe they can't make it to an LDI or something like that. So I'll teach. And I remember the good old days when I was explaining how you hooked up a uh, lighting console to a moving light and I could just talk about DMX cable. Uh, now, you know, it gets into the whole uh, networking side. Makes it hard to teach to new people, but for those of us using it, it is an absolutely amazing tool. I love the push that Previs is starting to have. I was a late adopter of Previs software as well because when you're focusing so much on, on the, the real design side of it, not just queuing, Previs starts to lose some of its capabilities. Five, six years ago, you might be able to go and, and do your focus positions in, in Previs software. You might be able to go do um, some of your queuing you know, for building chases and effects in Previs software. But as a, as a real tool for truly programming out your show, it wasn't there. Just in the past year or two, I feel like uh, it's starting to get there. And that's an amazing thing we're doing as, a, as an industry is, is uh, building that up because that's going to save money on pre-production, allow us to do more sooner in the design process. It's also going to allow accessibility to up-and-comers in the industry. I see guys post previous stuff they do to you know to Facebook or Instagram all the time, and these are guys who I, I know the level of shows they're doing, and it's nowhere near the 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 level of what their previous thing is, but that's still a a learning tool they're getting to use. So um, that those of us that came up in the '90s uh, didn't have the opportunity. We actually had to go out and, and physically do the shows to learn some of these things. They're getting to learn. Um, even for for a designer like me, maybe you're running from project to project, being able to fly into a project at the end of load in instead of the beginning 
you know, maybe it's a two day load in, uh, be able, able to come in to, at the tail end of that because I've been able to previs all the stuff I'd be doing over those two days in the venue. That alone is, is, is a huge time saver. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd say that one of the things I really feel like we're doing right is, um, the way we're starting to take safety seriously, uh, and what we're doing kind of almost feels like the, um, industry is, is growing up a bit, getting out of its, you know, teenage and early 20 years and, and kind of becoming a responsible adult. It doesn't think it's indestructible anymore. It doesn't think it's indestructible anymore. You know, I was talking about harnesses and fall protection to a, a young guy a few weeks ago. I probably crawled trusses for seven, eight, nine years uh, growing up before I touched a harness. Now the simple thought of that just blows me away. You know, I was at a load in last week where if you want to step foot on the floor, you better have a helmet on your head. Just 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. Things like, uh, in fact, I noticed, uh, I think in one of your emails, your, is it ETCP? Yeah. Sort of fun. You know, seeing uh, organizations like that start to spring up, uh, I think is, is awesome. I think um, because my focus is in the church world, one of my desires is to see how we can bring more of that into the church world. Because you have people who maybe aren't necessarily production professionals, but go to that church, they see what's going on in the production world, they want to be a part of it. And that's their entry into it. Whereas a lot of the rest of us come in through a company or something like that, or a, a professional level theater, and that, that's where we get taught the safety side of it. You know, I want to I want to see how we can start bringing that uh, more to the church world in a very accessible way, so that it doesn't matter if you're a big Willow Creek or Church on the Move t- size church with you know fifteen thousand members and a huge budget. But if you're a thousand member church that happens to still wants to be able to hang some truss and, and, and lights, you know, in your room that you've got somewhere to go to to learn the right way to do it. It, it, has to, it has to filter into every part of the business, but especially these ones where people are learning their way. Right. You don't want people going, you know, going out into the world, having learned in a, in a place where they don't take it quite as seriously and then feeling put upon when they're told to put harnesses on. You don't want them being in that position of never having done it safely before they go to a large event venue or go to an arena. Or before an accident happens. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's... Uh, that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night is, uh, you know, as, as quickly as, as my part of this business is growing, the, the church market, those of us, the professionals of us that are in it, um, they get an opportunity to talk to a lot of these places. All of us are, are preaching, preaching, preaching the safety aspect of it because, you know, when you think, see things like happened in uh, Indiana a few years ago with uh, the stage coming down and all that, you know, it can happen anywhere. I believe if, you know, it's only a matter of time before, unfortunately, we see that happen in a church. Um, Hopefully, we can steer it off in time. So, what do you like to do for fun? Fun? What's that? I've got a. I work in this business, and I've got two little boys. Yeah. Um. You know, I uh, I've I've got an amazing family, and uh, I love getting to spend time with them. You know, especially when you're having to travel for a decent amount of your your living. Sometimes just getting home and, and spending time with family is the best thing. Um. In this business where you're working 17, 18, 19 hour days sometimes and, and jumping on planes uh, everywhere, it's amazing how much better you can feel when you're uh, keeping in shape a little bit. So this past year, my wife and I uh, promised to to both, you know, we're both mid-30s and decided it was time to start taking that a little more seriously. So uh, we've made it a point uh, to start working out together. And uh, I never thought I would consider working out something I did for fun. Uh, yeah. But we, 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 have, we have found some stuff that is absolutely fun. And I, I sat here today, if you notice me shifting my seat a lot, uh, incredibly sore uh, because the workout was that good yesterday, but uh, it's amazing. I actually, I actually found some some exercise that I consider fun. Beyond that, this may be a cop-out answer, but this is what I do for fun. I think this is one of those businesses where if you're doing it for the pay, you will never make it. You know, it has to be 
something that you're doing for your passion. When you are working 16, 18, 20 hour days, when you are going away from your family for, you know, a week, two weeks, sometimes even longer at a time, um, the only way you're going to do well in it is if you do find at least the vast majority of it fun. What well, sounds like some good advice for new folks. Do you have any more? Focus on learning from design outside of just our industry. Look beyond just just other lighting designers uh, to, to learn your your design aesthetics. Get uh, input from everything. Get uh, get influenced by everything. Let that build your your design your your approach to design. Learn how to communicate. That was one no one ever told me. And ultimately, as designers, we are communicators. We have to communicate the actual design itself to our client ahead of time to to get the the design okayed. Communication is a two-way street. We have to be able to listen to our client and deduce from what they're saying what it is they actually want. Um, I hear designers complain sometimes that I wish they just tell me what they want. Well, it's our job to figure that out. It's not it's not their job to adapt to your way of communication. We then have to take that design and we have to communicate it to the the armies of technicians and specialists and content creators to get them the tools they need to do their job right. Uh, and then if we are still one of the ones operating it, you know, we have to communicate with everybody from spotlight operators to programmers to whoever else to get the event executed itself. So much of what we do comes down to communication. Yeah. And if you're not having fun, get out of this business. Anything else you want to tell us about? Any, any other thoughts that you have? As I mentioned at the start of this, I, I never thought, you know, I didn't aim for the church market. I'm not going to go off on a totally religious rant here, but in a lot of ways, I feel like I've ended up there because it's where I'm supposed to be. I feel like it's where God wanted me to be. Um, it's I've, I've had opportunities to, to use my talents there in ways I never did in other parts of the industry. Uh, and because of that, it's given me a passion for the market as a whole. So if somehow you're a church out there and you've stumbled onto this and you're thinking, man, some of what he's saying sounds real familiar, we're wanting to start using this technology to, um, to communicate our message to our, our congregation each week and we just don't know where to start, get in touch with me. Uh, not not from a job standpoint, not from a you can hire me to come do something for you standpoint, from a I just want to help connect some dots for you uh, to help you do that better. And that's a passion of mine, and I'm just happy to do it. Um, oh, so the soft sell. The, the soft sell. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. No, I'll be honest. Um, here, here's what I found is uh, some of those smaller churches, they're as time-consuming as time consuming as the big churches and, and don't have the budget. So I... I find the relationship that works better if truly I just help connect dots for those kind of places. And I focus on making my living off of the big churches. And then, uh, you know, I, I help the other ones. And maybe those other ones one day grow into big ones and then they can hire me and pay me. Uh, or maybe they don't. And it's just I just get to know that I, uh, I helped somebody. So, yeah, if you're one of those and you want to get in touch with me, need some advice or something or some pointers or uh, just some direction, uh, my website is danielconnell.com. And uh, it's easy to get in touch with me through there. And of course, that's also where everyone else can come check out your work as well, right? Absolutely. Got a few pictures up there. I need to probably put some fresh stuff up there soon. Yeah, check it out. All right. Thank you very much for coming on the show. All right. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. Um, have a good afternoon. Have a good evening. And thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast, and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. 
the Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go.